Has Rishi Sunak done what Boris Johnson couldn't manage and got Brexit done? That's going to be our question for this evening after his press conference with Ursula von der Leyen. We're going to be focusing, though, not so much on the parliamentary wranglings in Westminster, but on the politics of Northern Ireland and, and how um, the Northern Ireland Protocol, or now the Windsor Agreement, or Windsor Declaration, whatever they called it, how that will affect people um, in Northern Ireland. We've got some other great stories for you this evening. Throughout the show, I'll be joined by Ash Sarkar. Ash, how are you doing? Well, I'm just really pleased that my time machine works. We're back to... 2017, 2018, and the DUP have been threatening to blow up the Conservative government. There's a hastily put together deal to try and avert political disaster. Um, I'd, I would have hoped to have gone back further in time to see like the pyramids being built or something, but you know, 2018 will do just fine. First story, cast your mind back to the Brexit dramas of 2019. Theresa May's deal, which would have offered a relatively soft Brexit, had been defeated multiple times in Parliament. Boris Johnson then came along and negotiated a harder Brexit deal. He won a stonking majority off the back of that. But that deal, despite being christened as oven-ready, left unfinished business. That was because for Britain to split drastically from EU regulations, there would need to be customs checks between Britain and the EU. And to avoid a hard border on the island of Ireland... Northern Ireland would have to align with the EU instead of the UK. And that meant unfinished business because it left a number of significant groups pretty pissed off. Some of the Northern Irish public were annoyed at difficulties importing and exporting goods between Northern Ireland and Britain. The DUP were pissed off that Northern Ireland's political connection to the rest of the UK had been undermined and egged on by hard right backbenchers. Boris Johnson predictably used the opportunity to start a bun fight with the EU. That row has been the background music of politics ever since. Well, that is until today, at least if Rishi Sunak has his way. This is what he said today in a press conference with the EU's Ursula von der Leyen. I'm pleased to report that we have now made a decisive breakthrough. Together, we have changed the original protocol and are today announcing the new Windsor framework. Today's agreement delivers smooth-flowing trade within the whole United Kingdom, protects Northern Ireland's place in our union, and safeguards sovereignty for the people of Northern Ireland. So issues with the Northern Ireland Protocol can be classed into three main groups. The first concerns the issue of trade between Northern Ireland and Britain and the existence of a customs border down the Irish Sea. Sunak explained how the New Deal, the Windsor Framework, would resolve that problem. First... Today's agreement delivers the smooth flow of trade within the United Kingdom. Goods destined for Northern Ireland will travel through a new green lane with a separate red lane for goods at risk of moving onto the EU. In the green lane, burdensome customs bureaucracy will be scrapped. It means food retailers like supermarkets, restaurants and wholesalers will no longer need hundreds of certificates for every lorry. And we will end the situation where food made to UK rules could not be sent to and sold in Northern Ireland. This means that if food is available on supermarket shelves in Great Britain, then it will be available on supermarket shelves in Northern Ireland. And unlike the protocol, today's agreement means people sending parcels to friends or family or doing their shopping online will have to complete no customs paperwork. This means we have removed any sense of a border in the Irish Sea. 
So the second issue around the protocol was that Northern Ireland was treated differently from other members of the UK in terms of the goods they could buy. So not just how easily it would be to buy them, but whether or not they could buy them. Now, that was because Northern Ireland was aligned with EU standards, not UK ones. And so certain drugs and products available everywhere else in the UK couldn't be stocked in Northern Irish pharmacies and supermarkets. Other goods had different rates of VAT applied to them. Sunak said he's solved that too. We have protected Northern Ireland's place in the union. We've amended the legal text of the protocol to ensure we can make critical VAT and excise changes for the whole of the UK, for example on alcohol duty, meaning our reforms to cut the cost of a pint in the pub will now apply in Northern Ireland. The same quintessentially British products like trees, plants and seed potatoes will again be available in Northern Ireland's garden centres. Onerous travels on pet requirements have been removed. And today's agreement also delivers a landmark settlement on medicines. From now on, drugs approved for use by the UK's medicines regulator will be automatically available in every pharmacy and hospital in Northern Ireland. So the third group of issues concerned more generally sovereignty and whether Stormont, that's Northern Ireland's legislative assembly, would need to be subject to the European Court of Justice. Here's how Sunak described the solution to that problem. Today's agreement safeguards sovereignty for the people of Northern Ireland. The only EU law that applies in Northern Ireland under the framework is the minimum necessary to avoid a hard border with Ireland and allow Northern Irish businesses to continue accessing the EU market. But I know that many people in Northern Ireland are worried about being subject to changes in EU goods laws. To address that, today's agreement introduces a new Stormont break. Many had called for Stormont to have a say over these laws. But the Stormont break goes further and means that Stormont can in fact stop them from applying in Northern Ireland. This will establish a clear process through which the democratically elected assembly can pull an emergency break for changes to EU goods rules that would have significant and lasting effects on everyday lives. If the break is pulled, the UK government will have a veto. This gives the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland a powerful new safeguard based on cross-community consent. The Windsor framework is still just a proposal. It will have to go back to Westminster and the consent of the DUP will be important to end the current deadlock in Northern Irish politics. But what do the usual Brexiteer headbangers think? Steve Baker, now Minister of State for Northern Ireland, was interviewed leaving Downing Street before the deal was announced. Will you support the deal? I can only say this, that the Prime Minister is on the cusp of securing a really fantastic result for everyone involved. But thank you, that's all right. He seemed very cheery. Um, Boris Johnson, for his part, is yet to weigh in. But his presence and that of his successor, Liz Truss, were felt at today's press conference. Can you explain to us why Rishi Sunak's been able to negotiate these concessions when his three predecessors were unable to? It is very important uh, to take note of the fact that the two of us, uh, when we met for the very first time, we agreed um, that... I mean, if you look at the huge challenges we are facing together, whether it is the atrocious Russian war in Ukraine or the fight against climate change, 
um, we have so much in common. We're fighting for the same values. We're standing on the same side, shoulder by shoulder. And we want the best solution for the people of Northern Ireland in the situation that we have right now. So there was a very constructive attitude from the very beginning to solve problems, to find solutions, practical solutions for everyday life of the people and businesses in Northern Ireland. That's what we've done. And we've jointly developed the solutions. Uh, it needed a lot of goodwill and knowledge, and we have jointly agreed on that now. So um, I'm very happy about the agreement that we found with the Windsor framework. There will undoubtedly now be days of breathless speculation about parliamentary wrangling in Westminster. But it's the impact on Stormont, that's the seat of government in Northern Ireland, that will be more immediately significant. That's because the DUP have blocked power sharing there in protest at the protocol since February last year. And for that reason, Northern Ireland has gone a year without a government. To discuss how the politics of the protocol have affected the people of Northern Ireland, I spoke earlier to Belfast-based journalist Amanda Ferguson. Depending on who you talk to, the protocol is either the most important vital issue of the day or, the, or doesn't really bother them at all. Now, unionists uh, tend to have more of a problem with the protocol uh, than non-unionists, and that should be of a concern to everyone. So on a day-to-day -day basis, some people will be having difficulties with the protocol if you're a small business, uh, perhaps, or if you view the protocol as something that's uh, constitutionally damaging to Northern Ireland's part in the UK. Everyone will notice the fact that we don't have a government at the moment uh, in Northern Ireland. Stormont's been down since February of last year. So uh, practically every issue that you can think of, whether it's the worst waiting list in the UK, whether it's uh, ending uh, violence against women and girls strategy, a whole ream of issues. And that, that's why we've had to see uh, Chris Eaton-Harris step in uh, to introduce legislation around organ donation and so on. But it has been limited, sort of quasi-direct really hasn't been minded um, to uh, step in over every issue uh, and we've got civil servants in charge of each of the departments in Stormont at the moment and they can't make you know big ministerial decisions so we are stuck in this sort of stop start cycle of governance and I just think people are a bit wary of it but they are resigned to a certain level of dysfunction which is a little bit depressing. So should I take it from that that actually the biggest issue here is is whether or not Stormont can be or government from Stormont can be reinstated because you know when we hear about the key issues in this Northern Ireland protocol, it's sort of like whether pets need passports, certain foodstuffs going um, across the Irish Sea. Like none of it seems that important. You know, I, I can see why some people might be frustrated because of these things. But is is the real crux of the issue whether Northern Irish government could be restored? Well, it is for most people. Like certainly the, the protocol is something that benefits a lot of businesses, but small businesses in particular are having issues with it. So I think that the, the business community was very clear that they wanted uh, to hold on to the gains of the protocol and resolve the issues that were outstanding. If you look at the, the recent polling on Friday from Queen's University, it indicated that the, the for the majority of people, uh, it's not the protocol is not their major policy concern, health and education and a range of other issues are however uh, for unionists it's definitely one of the uh, you know the the, the most uh, pressing issues not every unionist but for a lot of unionists and particularly unionist leaders um so the the barrier to uh, devolution is the DUP all of the the other parties that are eligible to form government uh, would be in yesterday if they could be including the the smaller Ulster unionist party um, they don't like the protocol either uh, but their argument is that they want to get back 
uh, to Stormont delivering on the local issues while all of the outstanding issues uh, are resolved. And uh, it just remains to be seen whether the Windsor framework uh, is going to be something uh, that does that because there's hundreds of pages uh, for people to to pour over and uh, legal minds to have a look at to see if if they feel that um, it's something they can buy into. That's whether you're the business community or a non-unionist political party or a unionist political leader, uh, everybody's going to be looking at the fine detail and what it actually means. And I want to talk about the DUP and I suppose how people in the rest of the UK should understand them. Because I think there's a bit of a, I'm always split between, do, do you see them as sort of the, the legitimate voice of unionism in Northern Ireland? Or are they a bunch of cranks, a bit like Jacob Rees-Mogg, but Northern Irish? And, you know, <laughs> Jacob Rees-Mogg is a particularly representative of many people um, in, in England. I don't know if the DUP are that representative in Northern Ireland. But where, where do they stand on that spectrum between between sort of representing a real strong popular opinion within Northern Ireland and being sort of obsessive extremists who just keep managing to get elected anyway? The DUP is the largest party of unionism in Northern Ireland, so it does have a significant voice uh, and its concerns uh, do need to be taken seriously. It's not the only uh, unionist party. There's the Ulster Unionist, the traditional unionist voice, the small uh, progressive unionist party, and there's a couple of independent unionists as well. And, you know, the the DUP gets about 20-ish percent of the vote. So sometimes whenever you're hearing the, the debate unfolding, um, sometimes you're hearing, oh, the people of Northern Ireland and then the DUP view is represented. Uh, so that that isn't uh, the reality of, of, of this part of the world. The, the largest political party uh, for, for the Assembly anyways is Sinn Féin. Uh, the majority of MLAs up at Stormont uh, back the protocol, back Remain and so on. So I think it's important to reflect that there's a variety um, of different um, political aspirations, political viewpoints. And the DUP um, has a, a has a wide range of views as well. I think some of the, the DUP reps uh, are keener to get uh, Stormont back up and running than others are. So there's a bit of a battle going on in, in the DUP as well about what happens next. Uh, but certainly unionism across the board is concerned about the protocol. Uh, so I think that should be something that exercises everybody. Uh, but sometimes... Um, the, the others and the nationalists and the Republicans' uh, voice can be left a little bit out of the conversation because sometimes traditionally people think Northern Ireland, you have to defer to the Unionist Party that, that's leading, uh, but things have changed in this part of the world. You know, the, the political landscape's changing, the demographics of this part of the world are changing. So the, the Northern Ireland or the North of Ireland, however you view uh, where I'm from, uh, isn't the place it was 50 years ago or even 25 years ago. I think the, the pace of change that there's been in society has surprised some people. What do Sinn Féin and Irish nationalists think about the protocol? Is it sort of, this is a fight for the DUP to have with Westminster? Is it almost that there's little skin in the game or are people from that side of politics quite invested in this conversation as well? Sinn Féin would view the protocol as something uh, that protects uh, the north of Ireland, as they see it, um, against the worst impacts of Brexit. You know, the sometimes people have said to me, you know, why are the unionists not selling the protocol as, as being the jewel uh, in the UK's crown, as having that unique dual market access? Uh, but they really do view uh, the, the protocol as something really damaging, whereas uh, Sinn Féin and the SDLP and, and the other parties that didn't want um, to leave the, the EU say that it's a protection against Brexit, that Northern Ireland's performing better uh, in certain areas than the rest of the UK because of the protocol. Um, and they really just uh, view Brexit as a disaster that was imposed on this part of the world um, and that the protocol uh, mitigates against that to an extent. However, all, all of the other parties 
have acknowledged that uh, there are issues with the protocol that need to be resolved, that it wasn't perfect, um, and they're, they're going to be looking through um, all of the, the documentation from the EU and the UK to see uh, what it practically means uh, for, for people here. Out of 10, um, how likely is it that the DUP will accept this new deal, the Windsor Protocol? I think it was probably named that for, for a reason, to make it sound more English and British than the, than the, the protocol. Um, but how, how likely do you think it is that they will accept this and that government can be restored in Northern Ireland and Sunak can say, look, even the DUP are in favour of this. This is a clear victory um, for me and for this Conservative government in Westminster. Out of 10, I would probably say um, under 10, but above five. And the reason that I would say that is because if the DUP uh, and unionists don't wield power at Stormont, really, what's the point of, of, of Northern Ireland? You know, if you look at uh, the changes that have taken place across this island in terms of the political landscape, you know, Sinn Féin looks set to, to be poised to enter government in the Republic of Ireland at some point quite soon. And that would make them a co-guarantor sorry, a co-guarantor of the Good Friday Agreement. Now, the demographics of this part of the world uh, are changing. It's just not the, the the place that it used to be. So I think that if if the DUP want uh, to exercise power, they, they do really need to find a way to get back into government because if there was to be a collapse of Stormont, it's hard to see how it would come back. And also, if there was going to be direct rule, it's not going to be the direct rule of the past. There will be an Irish government dimension to that and that, poses a risk, I suppose, to, to unionism. But uh, regardless of, of what happens in this part of the world, um, some people are going to be British unionists, some people are going to be Irish Republicans. And the Good Friday Agreement, which is 25th anniversary, is coming up in April. It's very clear. The only way that the constitutional position changes is if people vote for it, and that's democracy. Next story. Energy regulator Ofgem has announced that on the 1st of April, the cap on prices that energy firms are allowed to charge will fall. At the moment, the average household bill is capped at £4,280. From next month, that cap will fall to £3,280, so a drop of £1,000. The drop is due to a fall in the price of gas since last year. And yet, and yet, household bills are set to go up by an average of £500. So what's going on? Money-saving expert Martin Lewis appeared on Good Morning Britain to explain. Since last October... We've also had this thing called the energy price guarantee, which is where the government subsidises energy prices. So if you take the £4,200 at the moment, what we're paying is £2,500. The difference is the amount that the government pays to energy companies. Now, the price cap is due to come down to £3,200, but as it is still higher than the energy price guarantee, we will still pay the energy price guarantee. And on the 1st of April, the government, because it sets the energy price guarantee, not the regulator, not firms, is planning to increase the price from £2,500 a year for someone on typical use by 20%. And that's what everyone should think of. You're going to pay 20% more in England, Scotland and Wales by 20% to £3,000. But because the cap is still higher than the energy price guarantee, the cap is irrelevant. The prediction is, it's worth noting, from July, the price cap will drop to £2,100. It will now be lower than the energy price guarantee, so we will pay the lower amount. So the government from July will stop subsidising energy prices, and we will pay the lower. Now, I have a really important advantage 
um, over Martin Lewis, which is that I don't have to use my hands because I can show you charts. So let's go through um, what he was explaining just a little bit more slowly. Um, and that is that two things happen in April. First, the government's £400 energy support scheme comes to an end. That paid £400 to every household over the six months between October last year and this April. But more importantly, and what he was talking about there, the government's energy price guarantee becomes less generous. So this Bloomberg graph is pretty helpful. You can see here the black bars are where the off-gem cap has been over the last two years and where it's predicted to be from July. This is what the energy firms are allowed to charge. The yellow line is the level of the government's energy price guarantee. That's the maximum the government guaranteed a household would pay or an average household would pay. The difference between the government price cap and the off-gem price cap is the amount the government are paying in subsidies. So as you can see, from October last year, the government cap was set at £2,500, but in April, it will rise to £3,000 per year, and that will mean the government will subsidise less of your bills, especially so as the cap set by Ofgem has come down. So as Lewis says, the rise in your household bill has nothing to do with the Ofgem cap. It's because the government is reducing its subsidy. So is increasing the government guaranteed price cap to £3,000 a good idea, even while gas prices are falling? Well, Martin Lewis doesn't think so. I wrote to the Chancellor two weeks ago saying, please do not do the price increase in April. It will only likely be in effect for three months. It seems to be an act of national mental health harm to send millions, almost everybody, a letter saying your energy bills are going to go up by 20% again. Well, they've already more than doubled again. And just for the sake of three months, if you instead postpone that rise until July, well, then we'll be back on the price cap. So the energy price guarantee is irrelevant and we get people to escape having to have that price hike. 80 major charities have now supported my call. Energy UK, which is the trade body for the energy industry, has supported the call and we are asking the government not to do the increase in April. So far, the government hasn't indicated that it'll increase the subsidy to help families out till the summer. If there is an announcement, it'll probably be in the budget in two weeks' time. But two weeks of increased bills hanging over your head is a lot of stress, especially for poorer families. And on that front, the Joseph Roundtree Foundation and the Trussell Trust have just released a report showing the extent of poverty in Britain, especially for those on benefits. This is a Guardian headline about the report. UK benefits fall short of minimum living costs by £140 a month, charities say. Now, they came to that £140 figure by calculating the cost of basic necessities, excluding accommodation costs for people in Britain, and comparing that to the standard allowance for people on universal credit. This is a graph from the report. It takes into account the 10% benefits uprating that will come into effect in April. The horizontal lines are the total costs of essentials per week, and the bars are the, are the amounts people receive in universal credit or the basic rate, the standard allowance for that. Now, for a single adult over 25, the standard allowance is £85, while the cost of essentials is £120. For a couple over 25, the standard allowance is £134, while the cost of essentials is £200. Now, those shortfalls are huge, and they're even bigger if you're under 25. Those are all significant gaps between what you need and what you get if you're on universal credit. And it's indicative of a larger collapse in the value of benefits payments. 
This graph shows the standard allowance or its equivalent in the past as a proportion of average earnings. In the mid-60s, the equivalent of the standard allowance, which would have been job seekers allowance in, in that day and age, paid about a third of average earnings. Today, it pays only around 12% of the average wage. This issue is caused by the fact that unlike pensions, universal credit payments made to working families aren't linked to the cost of their actual basic needs. Um, Paul Kisak is chief executive at the Joseph Roundtree Foundation. He told The Guardian this. Millions of low-income households going without essentials like food and heating and food bank use at record levels. It is plain the system is failing. It is time to build a system that is needs-tested, where the support people get is linked to the actual costs of essentials. A system where every family has enough money to get by, and as a nation we can find to history the scourge of people having to skip meals or switch off essential appliances just to get by. Ash, that sort of decline of the extent to which basic benefits have sort of gone down from the 60s to now is super striking. Also, I mean, I've shown on, on, on separate shows sort of how it compares to European countries, and I think we are the stingiest when it comes to basic benefit levels. Yeah, we absolutely are. And one of the reasons for that is that we have always been a laboratory for neoliberalism. Now, this is a bit before either of our times, but very famously, the slogan for Margaret Thatcher's 1979 election campaign was Labour isn't working. So what she did was she created a spectre of a kind of, you know, feckless and unproductive mass of the unemployed. And that allowed her the cover to do lots of different things. One was, very famously, her assault on the trade unions. But the other thing was also to look at the welfare system and see how it could be turned into a more disciplining tool for the workforce. Now, in her first term as prime minister, her monetarist policies led to a huge spike in unemployment. So that is going on at the exact same time as you are creating a moral panic figure of the lazy and feckless unemployed, and you are turning the benefit system into, into a, a method of disciplining, right? So you are making it um, just a, a lot less livable to be on benefits to try and so-called encourage people into employment, even though your own policies are leading to unemployment, right? That was the essence of neoliberalism under Margaret Thatcher. And every single subsequent government has still looked at the benefit system as a disciplining tool one way or another. So very famously, one of Tony Blair's uh, ministers said um, about benefits claimants, well, you know, they've got to learn that there's more to life than the journey from the bedroom to the living room every morning. Um, we have, of course, all lived through the austerity era, um, where the kind of, you know, monstrous figure of the benefits scrounger was created to take the heat off the fact that a ton of public money had just gone into propping up the banks and our economy had been left in a parlous state because of our over-reliance on the financial sector. Um, so th this isn't something which has been the creation of, of simply, you know, Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss or Theresa May. This has been the bedrock of our economic system and the role that welfare plays within it for well over 40 years. And there's one thing that um, I think has gone forgotten by many politicians, you know, including, I hate to say it, this current leadership of the Labour Party, which is it's not actually good for the economy if the workers share 
regardless of whether they are workers who are in employment or workers who are out of employment, to have that persistently decline in relation to asset wealth and within a context of an increased cost of living, which is a crisis of profit, right? It's not a crisis of work, it's a crisis of profit. Um, That's not a good thing because what you do is you end up collapsing demand because people spend less because they have to in order to pay for the essentials. And you're going closer and closer towards a recession and those productive parts of the economy. So cafe down your road or, you know, a little shop, which, you know, sells things which aren't considered essentials. Those are all things which suffer um, because of that collapse in demand. And it's something which is really bad if you are impacting the poorest amongst us, because if you increase their discretionary spending, uh, you end up with a lot more spending overall in society. Whereas if you increase uh, the discretionary spending of, you know, the top 1%, they're not actually going to buy more stuff, which feeds back into the productivity of the economy. Um, And that's something which, which has been forgotten. I mean, just today, Keir Starmer was talking about how he has to deal with growth before he deals with uh, equality. Uh, before he deals with inequality. Um, But that is totally upside down in the wrong way around. If you deal with inequality, you will uh, have more economic growth. Yeah, I think, you know, talking about the ideology behind those low benefits is important. And I suppose if you looked at that graph, I'm like, how come it still fell under New Labour? I thought they did some things to tackle poverty. Well, they did do some things to tackle poverty, but they were, you know, I mean, you can say they were good at this or you can say this was, uh, uh, they they went too far with it, but they did lots of targeting. So sort of targeted um, benefits towards pensioners and towards children. So they did reduce pensioner poverty. They did reduce um, poverty among children, but they remained very stingy when it came to working age adults. And that was because of the ideology that Ash was talking about there. They They still bought into this idea that you have to essentially discipline people back into work and that's why unemployment re- unemployment benefits stayed like historically incredibly low even under 13 years of labor government next story on sunday morning disaster struck off the southern coast of italy near the city of crotone in calabria a boat reportedly carrying up to 200 asylum seekers was smashed against rocks that boat which was thought to be just 20 meters long broke in two throwing its passengers into the rough water So far, 62 of those passengers have been confirmed dead, either washed ashore or retrieved from the sea. Twelve children were among those who died, including a baby. Only 81 people have been found alive so far, leading to growing fears that the death toll will grow. The night before the disaster, an EU surveillance plane reportedly alerted the Italian authorities to the boat's presence, but rough seas hampered a rescue attempt. Reports of the survivors are harrowing, to say the least. The Times reports that amongst the survivors is a 12-year-old boy who lost nine members of his family, including his parents. The Times goes on to report this. An Afghan man whose wife is missing, along with three of their children, told rescuers, quote, They were with me on the boat, but I haven't seen them since. A teenage boy who lost grip of his seven-year-old brother in the waves was in tears after he was rescued, saying, quote, What happened is my fault. I didn't protect him. Now, that is absolutely heartbreaking. Another survivor told the Times that when the boat began to break up, quote, The traffickers started to throw kids out. They grabbed them by the arm and threw them in the sea. One person has so far been arrested by the Italian authorities on human trafficking charges. This graphic from The Guardian shows the route the boat is believed to have taken. The vessel is thought to have departed from Turkey with people from Iran, Pakistan and Afghanistan on board. The bodies of victims would go on to wash up on a tourist beach in Calabria, southern Italy. 
Around 15% of refugees arriving in Italy come via this route, which is used by asylum seekers from Central Europe, the Middle East and Asia, as well as by those trapped in camps in Greece. Of course, tragedies like this are sadly not unusual. According to monitoring groups, more than 20,000 people have died or gone missing at sea in the central Mediterranean since 2014. Earlier today, I spoke to activist Richard Broad, who works in Italy alongside migrants in a community centre. I began by asking him to tell me more about that route from Turkey. It's actually a route which is very old. It's been used uh, by people who are blocked by the European border regime for 20, 25 years. Actually, the first Frontex operations uh, in Italy and some of the first Frontex operations in the Mediterranean were to try and block people along that route, to monitor the route and block it. So really, a lot of the policies we've seen developing over the past 10 years, uh, particularly around Libya and Sicily and Tunisia, were policies which were originally experimented on in the, in the Ionic Sea. What agency should we be holding responsible for tragedies like this? Is this an Italian thing? Is this a European Union thing? I mean, you talked about Greece there and Greece blocking people moving beyond their borders. Who shares responsibility for this? I think it's important when we're talking about the responsibility for blocking people from moving and for the consequent deaths that come through not creating normal, safe routes for people to move around the world. The responsibilities need to be seen as shared by a kind of mutually created border regime, which is partly, in this case, it's Turkey, partly it's the countries that people are are leaving, whether that's Afghanistan or Iran or Pakistan. Um, But of course, it's also uh, a European problem, both individually and and collectively across Europe. Um, Speaking from Italy, we're extremely angry with uh, not only the current Italian government, but all of the previous ones over the past 10 years that have just tried to block and criminalize uh, the entrance of people into Italy, rather than trying to look at safe ways for people to enter, to facilitate migrants and asylum seekers who are trying to come here, uh, maybe just to join their families or to have a, a better future life in some way or another. And could you talk about the politics of migration specifically in, in Italy? You've got a far-right or a newly elected far-right prime minister. I mean, how is that going to feed into, I suppose, this this issue of people crossing the sea? So the new government has very far-right elements in it. Um, We've had a a series of governments in Italy which have the right wing in it in one way or another, also through COVID. And and we really saw how during the COVID years, there was kind of a big push to try and uh, keep migrants out and blame migrants for the pandemic and usual activities of a a centrist or right-wing government. We saw it a lot with the centre-left government before. After, from really 2016-17 onwards, there was the Minister for the Interior, Maniti, who was part of the Democratic Party. Um, And it was really he who started criminalising the rescue operations, um, doing deals with Libya, very similar to the EU-Turkey deal, trying to block people. So much of what we're seeing with the new right-wing government is really a continuation, unfortunately, of what we saw created under the centre-left some five, six years ago. The difference maybe is that the rhetoric is a lot more uh, cutting um, and a lot, you know, has those kind of racist edges on it, which then has a difference for the lives of people here. One of the important differences, I think, is how much now we see coming back 
the idea that the uh, the NGO rescue operations, particularly in the central Mediterranean, are somehow in cahoots with the traffickers or are criminals uh, or even are in the pay of traffickers. You know, there's, they have a lot of conspiracy theories around uh, the NGOs and the humanitarian and activist groups who are trying to demonstrate solidarity with people on the move. And I think we're seeing that coming back um, in the in the statements that we've seen from government ministers today and yesterday, we even have the Minister of Defence uh, saying that they need to be combating people traffickers in Turkey and in the Mediterranean, rather than talking about how to stop people dying and how to stop people uh, taking to the sea by opening up safer routes for people to get to Italy and to Europe in general. Looking at Italy from from the outside, Georgia Maloney being elected prime minister, and you know it, it seems like you've got basically a competition between the far right and the right, and then the centre. It seems as if you're not going to have much space for a politics of compassion for for refugees and migrants. Is there any chance at all that sort of the Italian public will be moved to take a more compassionate approach to migration after a tragedy like this? I think that's a really good question for two reasons. One is strangely. Yesterday, um, the, the news of the horrendous shipwreck um, came in at the same time as the Democratic Party elected a new leader, which is Elie Schlein, who is, if not particularly left-wing, is certainly more left-wing than many of her predecessors in the leadership for the Democratic Party. And so perhaps there is an opening there to have some kind of real opposition to the centre-right and far-right elements in the current government. That said, I think it's important when we talk about compassion um, to be really to have to be really look carefully at what is being proposed by parties and governments. Again, if we look at the statements that are being made by all sorts of groups and politicians yesterday and today, there's a lot of compassion. There's a lot of compassion, uh, and people saying we must stop the deaths at sea. The Mediterranean has become a cemetery. That big activist push and activist language has been taken on board. The problem is the response by the right wing and, and the government is in order to stop people dying at sea, we must arrest and criminalize the traffickers and the boat drivers, essentially looking for culprits among the migrants rather than looking for culprits within the government. And I think so. It, it's strange how that compassion, that sentiment, which is very strong in Italy, uh, of course it is, uh, because it's humane, um, can be militarized and weaponized uh, against the people that really we should be trying to help. Next story. As part of his UK tour, Bernie Sanders appeared on Sky News this Sunday. This was the most interesting part. Why do you think that in difficult times, and times are really difficult, you've outlined some of the reasons why it's so difficult for working families. People tend to, in recent years, tack the radical right, not the radical left. Well, I think the demagogues all over the world take the anger that people feel. People should be angry. Mm -hmm. They should be angry that they, their kids, in many cases, are doing worse than they are going to be doing. Uh, they can't afford basic necessities of life. They are angry. And what demagogues say is, don't look at the people who really own the system. Mm -hmm. Don't look at the ruling class. Don't look at the people who cause the problems. Look at immigrants. Look at people of color. Look at gay people. Look at people who might be different than you. You're supposed to hate them. Let's rally around those hating those people rather than looking at those who are really causing the problems. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, we, we've seen it in, in, in the UK, in the States as well. <clears throat> in the States as well, of course. Yeah, certainly. Um, I, I guess um, what, what others would say is, look, look you, you're coming from the radical left. We've seen what happens. I don't think it's all that radical. Do you not? 
No. That's interesting. Fighting for human rights, for economic rights. Is it radical to say that every worker in America or the UK should earn a living wage? Is it really radical to say everybody is entitled to quality health care, quality education, affordable housing? Is it really radical to demand that billionaires start paying their fair share of taxes? I don't think that's radical. I guess what others would say, though, is like, look, if, if you want to make a change, you can't just sit from the sidelines coming up with these ideas that sound great. You've got to win elections. You haven't won an election in the States. Jeremy Corbyn fell Well, I beg your pardon. I have won a lot of elections. I am a United States senator. That's true, for the presidency. You're right. I I stand corrected. But you you get where I'm coming from, that you have to compromise. You have to win from the centre in order to... No, I don't accept that. In fact, the way real change always takes place is when millions of people demand it, and then suddenly you have presidents or prime ministers say, "Mm, I think that that's a good idea, because they know that millions of people want it. At the end of the day, what struggle is about is working class people standing up and demanding justice. And the people on top will respond to that. Do you think that perhaps politicians from the centre, I guess some would say more kind of compromising uh, politicians, Joe Biden, perhaps uh, Keir Starmer over here in the UK, they need to be a bit more radical? Yes. Bernie Sanders, um, correcting the interviewer to say that, yes, he has actually been elected many times because he is a senator um, of Vermont. Presidential elections aren't aren't the only elections in the United States. One, reminds me that Bernie Sanders is an incredibly gifted communicator. He takes socialist ideas and he makes them really simple. Um, And you just sort of wish that um, politicians of the left in this country who don't have the glamour of being American were allowed to put their case across in a similar way. Um, I think that there's a big unspoken elephant in the room which is the behavior of the British media because if when Sophie Ridge is going well why don't the far left do well look at your own fucking profession I'm sorry do you honestly believe that had the media behaved as it ought to be which is covering the parties and the candidates fairly sticking to matters of fact and not being swept away by huge moral panics, which had very little to do with the actual conduct of the leader of the Labour Party, would 2019 have happened? Would 2017 have ended in a hung parliament for the Conservative Party? Or maybe would it have resulted in a Labour government? The media puts its thumb on the scale. And then when you see the electoral results of telling people day in, day out, these people are terrorist sympathizers. Uh, These people are horrendous racists. These people want to tax your garden and take it away from you. Well, of course, there are electoral uh, results of that. Of course, you end up doing worse in elections because the information being fed to people is contaminated with bullshit quite frankly. Um, My problem with the media isn't um, that, oh, the the electorate, um, you know, votes the wrong way. It's that the electorate never gets to make a fair and informed decision. Now, if you had a media environment which wasn't so skewed to the right, where newspaper circulation wasn't being controlled by a handful of right-wing billionaires where the BBC and Sky News and ITV News weren't all taking their cues from what was being said in those right-wing papers and we were still getting our asses handed to us in general elections. I'd go, you know what, fair enough. 
fair enough. You know, we've got to keep working for it. We've got to keep trying to persuade people. We've got to keep trying to build power in trade unions and through extra parliamentary movements. But, you know, fair enough. Fair enough. It's not our time. We're not here yet. But when I see such outrageous abuses of the position of power that comes with being in the media, that's the thing which really, really gets my goat. And Bernie Sanders has been on the receiving end of that as well. The left in America has been on the side of that um, horrendously. And just like uh, the UK, you've unfortunately seen complicity from what's meant to be the center left because they're more worried about losing their status and their lovely paid jobs uh in the left in in, in the left-wing party uh than they are about overall the direction of the country um if you allow right-wing populism to seize the levers of power the simplest answer to that question, you know, how come the, because it is true, I think the populist right have been more successful than the populist left. If you look at, you know, who has managed to to enter government since the financial crisis. And I think there are a number of answers that are worth sort of considering, but the most obvious does seem to be that, well, the populist right don't challenge the powerful, the populist left do. And that means that the powerful sort of close ranks and ally against the populist left, including using all the media organizations they own. Um, and the, the populist right don't have to contend with that because actually their interests are aligned with with powerful people. Is it as simple as that? And I suppose even if it is as simple as that, what can we do? Because I suppose we can feel like, yes, that, that means we aren't, um, you know, we didn't lose because our ideas were bad, but I mean, we still do keep losing to some extent. I mean, what's, how, how do we, how do we navigate from here, Ash? I think the answer to that is that it's not parliamentary politics alone that can do it. I mean, you had a very different kind of electoral landscape when you had much higher union membership and also a lot more strike action uh, that did force a different kind of accommodation between labor and capital. Now, of course, the media environment during that time was also very different. The highest circulating newspaper in the country was the Daily Mirror rather than the Sun. But I think that that strength of trade union activity is really, really important because it doesn't just um, force concessions in terms of pay and conditions. Of course, it does that and primarily does that. It also shapes a different kind of political subjectivity. Now, this isn't some crazy left wing idea. It was Margaret Thatcher who said economics is the method, the object is to transform the soul. So that's why she broke up all of those big political institutions which create class consciousness. So that meant all-out war on the trade unions. That meant decimating uh, centres of heavy industry. And that also meant taking a hatchet to council housing by throttling its construction and pursuing right to buy. So you create a new class of mini capitalists from that uppermost echelon of the working class. Now, unfortunately, since that happened 40 years ago, we haven't had a government who's tried to do that for the left. And that is the biggest single wasted opportunity of Tony Blair's three back-to-back -back electoral victories. Instead, what he did was deepen all of those forces, um, which ultimately weakened the electoral potential of the left. It sort of just fed the machines that pump out Tory voters and disenfranchise and weaken uh, class consciousness in, in those other sectors of society. And the politicians who came along saying, actually, 
it doesn't have to be this way. Strategically, it's smart for us to look at questions of distribution and fairness in the economy, and also strategically as well as morally, right, for us to make uh, promises on things like council housing, promises on things like uh, trade union legislation. Well, they're the ones who were monstered in the press to the point where they became totally unrecognizable. So I think you're totally right to say um, it's about not being seen as a threat to capital, but it's also about not being seen as a threat to the long-term interests of the right. I mean, that's the reason why I don't think, you know, the Daily Mail or the Times or the Telegraph look at Keir Starmer with anything like fear because they look at him and they go, okay, you're a one-term prime minister. Maybe you're a two-term prime minister, but you're not going to do anything which over the long term creates Labour voters and undertakes that transformation of the political soul, which changes how people view themselves in society and makes them vote more in terms of um, their collective class interests rather than their aspiration to be one of the elites. We've covered some important, serious, heavy topics this evening. The last story is none of those things. Bizarre Matt Hancock videos just keep on coming. He uploaded this before Newcastle played in the League Cup final. So exciting. If you've been a Newcastle fan, we've waited years for this. We haven't been to Wembley for years. This is the most exciting thing that happened since Kevin Keegan. Bring it on. So exciting. I'm genuinely excited about football. And this isn't me trying to seem relatable to ordinary people in any way whatsoever. Um, very odd video. Um, it gets weirder, though. Um, as the eagle-eyed among you might have noticed, Hancock was wearing a signed Newcastle shirt. You can see that signature there next to the Newcastle badge. There's a problem, though, because the shirt he's wearing in that TikTok video looks a lot like the signed Newcastle shirt Hancock was supposed to have sold off in a charity auction three years earlier. So you can see here a story from a newspaper at the time. It says, Matt Hancock auctions pride and joy Newcastle United shirt to raise cash for NHS scrubs. And you can see there a picture of him proudly holding up that signed Newcastle shirt. I'm going to read you some of that article because it's fairly entertaining. On Friday, radio DJ Chris Evans held an online auction to raise money for Scrubs Glorious Scrubs, a voluntary sewing collaborative making non-surgical scrubs for NHS workers. Celebrities including Anton Deck and Rod Stewart took part, donating personal items for fans to bid on. The auction run by Binin Auctions, which is helping charities with fundraising during COVID-19, raised almost £600,000 for the cause. And Mr Hancock, Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, decided to join in, offering up his own much-loved piece of Newcastle United memorabilia. The minister who holds overall financial control of the health service and oversight of all NHS delivery has helped raise a total of £1,850 through the online sale of the shirt. They go on to write... In the description of the lot, Mr. Hancock called the shirt, my pride and joy. He said, quote, this shirt was gifted to me by Uncle Dave. It was because of him that I am now a lifelong supporter and fan of Newcastle United. Signed by the team, the top is seen hanging behind me on the bookshelf during many of my Skype interviews. I will sign it for you also, if you like. Um, and then the Evening Chronicle write, it's not known if the winning bidder took Mr. Hancock up on his offer to add his own signature to those of the Newcastle players. So what explains the mystery of the signed shirt? Matt Hancock has responded to the controversy. Um, the spokesperson for Matt Hancock said, Matt put his signed Newcastle football shirt up for sale as part of Chris Evans' NHS charity appeal to raise money for scrubs. But the person who bought it very kindly gave Matt's beloved shirt back to him 
as a gift. So Matt Hancock is a pretty lucky guy. So you might remember he went on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here to donate money to charity. Um, but lo and behold, lucky Matt Hancock managed to keep £310,000 to himself. Um, 10 grand was given to charity. And now we know um, that he donated a signed shirt to charity, but managed to keep the signed shirt. Um, Ash, Matt Hancock, lucky guy. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so lucky. Whenever he tries to do something for charity, he mysteriously ends up being the primary beneficiary of it. Oh, my God. <laughs> Getting past the how did the shirt arrive back in Matt Hancock's hands bit, um, there's something utterly nauseating about a health secretary whose job it is to make sure that nurses and doctors and healthcare assistants and porters all have the equipment they need participating in a charity drive to try and get them scrubs and PPE. I mean, that's your fucking job. You should be procuring it. Um, I, I, I hate this kind of, you know, pat on the back for donating a shirt rather than, you know, doing the job that you've been appointed to do by the prime minister. I mean, it's just, it's just utterly sickening. Um, so yeah, dealing with those two things, can we then just get on to like how weird a man Matt Hancock is? Because I watched the entirety of that video and he did not blink once. So it's just this unbroken gaze of somebody who clearly has a pit of self-loathing in him, which is, you know, deeper than Lake Baikal, trying to project charm and ease and confidence. And that combination of love me, please love me, aren't I lovable, never leave me, um, and the kind of affable, everyman, cheeky chappy, it does something to my body where I cringe so hard internally, I rupture my spleen, and I kind of can't get over the, like, grotesque pathos of the Matt Hancock character, you know, he's he's shacked up with, you know, the woman he was having an affair with. He's, you know, jettisoned his wife. I've got no idea what, you know, his relationship with his kids are. And still, still, um, rather than being a man who's made difficult choices to be happy, he looks like someone who's just casting around desperately for a sense of self. Like, I don't know. It's like he's... Uh, Dostoevsky character or something. My apologies in advance, Ash, because you're going to have to come to terms with seeing more of Matt Hancock. Um, he has set up a TV company um, following his I'm a Celeb appearance, so Sky Report. He has created a television program in a production company called Green Hazel as he pursues his media career. Clearly, ruining our NHS was not enough. Now he's committed to ruining reality TV. There's nothing sacred in this country. Um, thanks, Ash, for joining me this evening. <laughs> I really I like knowing what's important to you, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> I really like knowing what's important to you. You're like, oh, listen, ruining the NHS was one thing, but I draw the line at reality TV. <laughs> <laughs> He's already ruined I'm a Celeb. What can he come for next? Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> thanks, everyone, for watching this evening. Um, we will be back tomorrow at 6 pm. You've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.